For the final segment of this program, I met with Ms. Jean Griffin, an oncology nurse practitioner who was part of the team led by oncologist Dr. Tom Lynch, who several years ago fundamentally changed the treatment paradigm of lung cancer when they identified a genetic mutation within the tumors of some patients with non-small cell lung cancer that predicted for excellent response to the EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors, erlotinib and gefitinib. However, to begin our conversation, Ms. Griffin discussed how her team approaches the patient being considered for adjuvant therapy. We look at what stage the disease was that just was removed, and then we look at the comorbidities, if they have diabetes, heart disease, COPD. A lot of these patients are smokers. Are they actively smoking or have they stopped? And, you know, also with that, are they local? Because we get some patients that come for our thoracic surgeons, and then we might see them in the clinic or we might see them in the hospital before they're discharged, and we may be recommending adjuvant therapy for a local hospital to give. For non-protocol, it's cisplatin and taxotere or carboplatin and taxol. And then we have done some trials using Avastin with those. What are some of the factors that you consider when you decide between the cis-dosotaxel and the carbotaxel? Well, I think the studies have been showing that cis and taxotere are a little bit better response rate and overall survival, but also more poorly tolerated. So we have to watch a patient, see if they have any hearing loss, any renal problems, if they can't tolerate the steroids and Usually, if they're a little bit more fragile, then we'll go with the carbo over the cisplatin, mostly for renal problems. Can you kind of talk specifically about what you would go through with a patient who's about to start cystosotaxel as opposed to what you go through with a patient in terms of side effects and risks with carbo and taxol? Yeah, we would still give the antiemetics. We use Zofran. Compazine and Ativan. If they were going with the cisplatin over carboplatin, we would probably add Emend to the antiemetic regimen. And we would also do a little bit more warnings on the edema that people can have with the taxotere and also keeping hydrated. That's the big one with the cisplatin. And also the hearing loss, any ringing in the ears. We do see a lot of that with cisplatin. So that would be a little bit different. But for all patients, we would discuss the counts, the white blood cell count, the risk for infection, risk for anemia, the risk for bleeding for both those regimens. Now, what about sort of overall quality life, fatigue, you know, generally how people tolerate those two regimens? I think we definitely see problems with both. We do four treatments usually. So I usually tell patients that number three is the worst. The fatigue is cumulative. In the fourth one, they're done. So they sort of have that better outlook at that point. But we've had patients quit at two or three, definitely. What's the usual reason they quit? Fatigue. And when patients ask you again with both of these approaches, how long will it be once the chemo stops before I'm kind of back on my feet and I feel the same? We usually tell them because they've also had lung surgery, we say six months to a year. And are the patients usually completely recovered from the effects of surgery when you start the chemo or are they still kind of feeling a little bit? They're usually still on some PRN pain medicines, but other than that, they're up and about. I think that's our big thing is they're able to move around, able to walk into the clinic, not in a wheelchair, not guarding themselves, but taking just the medicine PRN. 
Now, in breast cancer, there's another taxane that's out being used, nabpaclitaxel, and it's being studied in lung cancer. And there you have the advantage of not needing pre-medications and a shorter infusion time. Any thoughts in the lung cancer population, if it turns out that the efficacy is similar to taxol, that these other advantages, the shorter infusion time or the lack of pre-medications, particularly the steroids, how do you think that would play out in a lung cancer population? I think that would be great. Our patients, I mean, every hour outside of the clinic means a lot to them. So those really add up. It would also mean a lot for the infusion room. We have two-hour waits sometimes. So if we're getting patients in and out quicker, that would ultimately be best for the patients. In the steroids, we've had patients complain of anything from just insomnia to having some sort of manic episode even, or mini psychosis. But more often, the teariness, the changes in mental status or moods with the decadron. And we see the blood sugars go up, but they ultimately just go back down. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, I saw one survey that said that I think it was about 75% of people getting steroids for chemotherapy have identifiable significant problems, usually insomnia or agitation, although the other issues, as you mentioned, does that sound right? I mean, most people have serious problems with the steroids? I think whenever I'm starting a patient on steroid, I make sure they have a sleeping pill. So yeah, we do see it a lot. But then again, it's also the day before chemotherapy. So patients are very anxious that night anyway. So there's a lot going on on that night, but we definitely see problems with steroids, great drugs, but have a lot of side effects. So when you use sleeping pills, are people usually able to sleep or does that? Is it yeah, not? yeah, we've used, well, they get Ativan anyway for their nausea. So they have that. And if it's really bad, we've even used Zyprexa, an antipsychotic, and that's been helpful. It's interesting. You know, sometimes I wonder whether some of the fatigue that people experience with chemotherapy might be from having a couple of nights and not being able to sleep. Yeah. And it's funny because they feel great the day of the chemo, no doubt because of the Decadron and even the next day, but then they crash after that. Interesting. We'll, we'll see whether or not that works out in lung cancer. The other thing about adjuvant therapy is the issue about new trials. And of course, there's a big trial that ECOG has that I don't think it's quite up yet, but should be up soon, looking at bevacizumab or Avastin along with chemotherapy. Are there any trials that you have that you're putting patients on right now in the adjuvant setting? We have used carbotaxel on Avastin, followed by Avastin alone for six months. And actually, the patients are just about finished or have finished that and are now on follow-up. Right. I know your center is one of the, I guess, the first wave of trying to look at that. I think that's not randomized, just trying to see how people tolerate it. Right, right. And what have you observed in that regard? Well, with longer term of of Avastin, we have seen the hypertension. That definitely has happened. We've had to put patients on Norvask or something like that. But it's definitely treatable. It's not something that we've had to stop treatment for, but it's something that we've had to treat. Any sort of impressions in the adjuvant setting now? We'll talk about metastatic disease too, whether or not adding in the bevacizumab is impairing quality of life over and above impairment from chemotherapy. I don't think so. I think the over and above chemotherapy, we do usually keep it going for six months. So the patients continue to come every three weeks. So that can definitely impair, you know, going back to work, sort of getting on with their lives after adjuvant therapy would have already been finished. But usually patients are okay with coming back. They're sort of nervous about getting back into the real world without that follow-up. And when you tell them, okay, you have to come back in three months, they sort of say, what do you mean three months? They feel like you're sort of cutting the cord. 
Right. But in that period of time when they're getting just the bevacizumab, other than the inconvenience of coming in and et cetera, do they kind of go back to feeling the way they felt before? Yep. The hair comes back. They feel well. They just sort of get sick of coming. Now, your center, and particularly Dr. Tom Lynch, has really taken a leadership role in the whole issue of identifying people who have a greater chance to respond to TKIs, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and specifically the one that we have right now is erlotinib. And, of course, you know, Tom and the group came up with the EGFR mutation, but there's also been the issue of non-smoking as a predictor. Can you kind of discuss how you approach identifying patients like this and then how that changes the way you approach them? Well, I think as far as first line goes, we have difficulty starting patient on allotinib alone. It's not covered by insurance for first line. The data isn't there for first line. We have had some clinical trials that show, okay, if they have this EGFR mutation, then we've started them on a clinical trial on, actually it was ERISA at the time, first line. And we've been doing that trial for years now, and we actually still have some patients that have been on it for over three years. So that's just great. So as far as first line goes, when we have some studies, uh, it's our patient today who had, he gets carbotaxol and Tarceva all at the same time. But Again, that's just a clinical trial that we do that on. And what is the criteria to do that, to receive it first line? Uh, non-smoker is our biggest one, adenocarcinoma. That this patient had never smoked, was not exposed to any secondhand smoke, no asbestos or anything that we could find as a link to his lung cancer. Now, there's also been discussion about what's been called the oligo smoker or the person who maybe only smoked 10 or 15 pack years, maybe they quit 20 or 30 years ago. How do you approach those patients? Do you sort of treat them like a non-smoker? Our sort of line is eight pack year smokers, which I think is, you know, the smokers during college or something like that. We consider them non-smokers, but people who have more than eight pack year smokers, we consider a former smoker. It might help us decide what's happening second line, but I don't think that would be our first line choice. Now, you know, it's funny. I interviewed Tom a few years ago and I could see that he had something on his mind, but I couldn't get him to tell me what it was. And it was actually two weeks before that huge New England Journal paper that he published showing about this EGFR mutation. I made him come back and interview with me again because I want to hear that whole wild story. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? And also, I don't know if you know the patient that sort of sparked all this that he told me about. It's just an incredible story and sort of what that mutation is. Yeah, I mean, I've taken care of most of the patients in the original trial. And just that time to be working in lung cancer was just amazing. We had, I think there were 12 patients in the original paper, but probably about half of them had come to us as a last resort, which is so hard to see. But as being, you know, a major cancer center, we've had patients from all over. I know that he usually tells a patient about the woman with, you know, young children, and she just said, I need to do something. But one of my favorite stories is about a patient who came from Iran, came in on a stretcher. The family said, we need to bring you to Boston for treatment. So we came in on the stretcher, and we said that really there's nothing we can do. Why don't we try to do this ERISA at the time? And gave him a prescription for ERISA, sent him home back to Iran to be with his family with hospice. And then six months later, I got a phone call asking for a refill on the ERISA. So that we just assumed that he had passed away with his local oncologist. 
And when his daughter ever called and said, can we have a refill? And he's feeling so much better. And then, so we said, you can have as many refills as you want, but, you know, could you bring him back? So he came back and he walked into the clinic and he had um, candies for us from Iran because he was just so thankful for everything because he really, you know, was thinking that he was going home to die as we did. So that's really just an amazing time to be. And we still take care of him, actually. So he's doing wonderful. So how long has he been on treatment? He's gone from Arisa to Tarsiva. And then after he progressed on that, went to Carbotax of Aston. So he's been on a number of treatments, but it's been over four years now. Wow. And he's off treatment right now, but getting ready to start a new tyrosine kinase inhibitor study that we're doing. And I guess we should clarify that that original paper, I guess what you all were looking for were these cases like this man where they'd had these tremendous responses to TKIs. As you said, Arisa was the original one, Jafitinib, and now Erlotinib. But I remember there was a, he was telling me about this woman, the one who got in the Boston Globe. Does that ring any bells? Yeah, yep, the woman, she was the, on the Today Show. What's this, can you go through that story again? Because I can't quite remember what happened there. So she is a woman and her husband is a physician. She had gone through chemotherapy, wasn't responding. She had bilateral bronchiovalar carcinoma, had brain mets, really was starting to have, you know, even the personality changes that went along with that, wasn't able to care for herself, her teenage children, and came up to Boston for her second opinion. We tried the ERISA, and then, you know, she was just this amazing woman who's now so in control of her life, her children. She speaks around the world now with Tom sometimes. Otherwise, she's doing a lot for advocacy for lung cancer, and she's just been doing wonderful for, again, probably four years. And I guess just to take the story to the next level, once you collected these patients with extraordinary responses, you started to study their tumors and found that, in this case, the mutation that you found was actually in the tumor, sort of not what we're usually expecting with, you know, genetic syndrome. This is actually a change in the tumor that I guess is thought to correlate with how the TKI kind of binds in with the tumor. I don't know. That's my understanding. What's yours? So, you know, patients, if the receptor is turned on and that's how the lung cancer is growing, then you can sort of turn it off with these tyrosine kinase inhibitors and then promote cell death for the lung cancer. And the great thing about them is the side effects. They don't have the normal side effects of the nausea, vomiting. They do have side effects in the skin, because there has been some of those tyrosine kinase receptors in the skin and also in the GI tract. So the side effects we see are the rash and the diarrhea. Now, I think right now this mutation test is not utilized that much in clinical practice. It's more of a research tool, I think. But I would imagine a lot of the people that you're seeing in your center have the test done. Do you utilize that in decision-making? We do. We have had some patients that request it. They come to us because we do the test. Otherwise, we can do the test, and it's helped us decide where to go. You know, right now in lung cancer, there's a lot of second-line options. There's the Olympta, you know, Taxotere, or Tarsiva. So to decide where to go second line, that test has been helpful. And we'd go to Tarsiva if we knew that the patient was EGFR positive. And you mentioned about the rash. Can you talk a little bit about what you say to patients to sort of prepare them for that and how you manage it? So the data says about 50 to 60 patients have rashes. I think it's more like 75 to 80 
we see a lot of rash with the Tarsiva and also with our few patients that are still in ERISA. I tell them to be prepared for it. I tell them it looks like acne, so they know what it looked like. And it comes on the chest, face, and back. We also tell them that even though we can help the rash, we can't make it go away. Because that's always, when you give somebody a treatment for the rash, like we give them cleosin usually to sort of take away the anger, to take away the swelling and some of the lesions. And we let them know this is not going to fix it. It's still going to be there. It's going to be worse about two weeks into the Tarsiva and then sort of have ups and downs after that. But the worst part is usually I see 10 to 14 days after it starts. And how much of the problem clinically is sort of cosmetic as opposed to, you know, actually pain or discomfort? I think most of it is cosmetic. You know, we've definitely had patients that we've had to dose reduce because you can get infections, pain, or itch that just is interfering with quality of life. We can't have patients on Benadryl 24-7. But we definitely see more the cosmetic reasons. And if you look in our waiting room, you can pick who's on the erlotinib. Now, there's a lot of controversy about the patient who does have an EGFR mutation or is a non-smoker. Is the algorithm going to be different in terms of where erlotinib comes in? Are there situations, for example, you might consider it first line in metastatic disease and even using it in the adjuvant setting, which, of course, there are trials looking at that. But the question is, is that something to discuss as a possibility with somebody who's not eligible for the study or doesn't want to go in the study? How do you all approach those difficult questions? I think if we're going to go sort of off standard and think about it as first line, we would like to do it in a study. The problem that we run into, we definitely have had some 80-year-old people that we don't think would be candidates for chemotherapy. And we don't want to force them into a study. So it would be great to give them Tarsiva. We sort of feel like any patient with lung cancer should get Tarsiva at some point. And we've been known to start Tarsiva one day and then start hospice the next day. As long as they have that prescription filled before they start hospice, usually our hospice nurses don't mind. But the insurance companies can really rule that because they don't cover it for first line. And that becomes a problem. You know, As a nurse practitioner, I see it probably more than the physicians. They say, well, I'm just going to send them home with a prescription for Tarsiva. And working how I do, I said, well, did you tell them that this isn't going to be covered and it can be $2,500 a month and this is a big deal for most people? Some people say, no, I understand and that's fine. Other people, no, we can't go into our savings for something that may or may not work. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Lung Cancer Update.